now, the Doctor Who Show musical episode. And welcome to the latest flagship episode of the Doctor Who Show. How have you been, Rob? I've not been too bad at all. It's been a wet old time in Sydney this past week. It seems that as soon as we t- switched to uh, autumn, uh, summer just ended instantly. Uh, the temperature dropped about 10 degrees and it's rained half the time. I reckon we've had about an hour's worth of rain in the last three or four weeks in Melbourne. Far out. No, we, we've got it all up here, I think, and Queensland as well, so maybe further up north. Fair enough. So exciting times in fandom. You can feel, finally, I think you can actually feel the next season coming. Yes, yes. This is something we spoke about, I think, last time. We were saying, you know, there wasn't much around. And as soon as we put that episode out, boom, stuff started dropping all over the place. Pictures, videos, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But even then, I still stand by my comment that I think the build-up to this has been slower and more low-key than it has for most series that have come out previously. Yeah, that's fair. It's almost like they've forgotten how to uh, do it in the uh, year off. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's been a little bit odd. But as you say, stuff is starting to come, and we're now less than a month from the first episode of Series 10. Now, before we kick on with some news, which may touch on Series 10, although I know we don't want to particularly go there too much and and spoil things for people, uh, we have some uh, listener email. Uh, We'll have a lot of email during the course of this show, actually, when we get to our main topic. But I have a quick uh, message here from Kenny Davidson. Hello, Kenny, from the Book of Fab Facebook group, which is uh, an excellent Doctor Who group. I think everyone should join. He says, Read David's conspiracy theory. I'm not sure why Pearl Mackey's casting was revealed quite as early as it was. The momentum of that announcement was lost, given the delay in filming and airing Series 10. Now, we'll hear more of Kenny's note later in the episode. Um, But for now, Dave, your uh, Pearl Mackey conspiracy theory, was she announced too early? What's going on there? Yeah, I don't have an answer to that, but I think that Kenny's made a really good point that there was a lot of momentum lost because her announcement was just in this sort of vacuum of a lack of Doctor Who. And in the meantime, they've announced... Nardle, and he's had his own um, premiere in the Christmas special, and then he's sort of been the focus of a lot of the PR. And we're now, though, starting to get a bit of Pearl Mackey in the trailers, although I've got to say, that's not helping me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you haven't been too impressed by some of these lines. I don't know what you thought of the line, uh, it looks like a spaceship, no, a kitchen. I kind of laugh at that stuff, but I'm not sure you're enjoying it. Is that right? I'm a bit of a drier sort of person when it comes to my humor and my drama and so sometimes when the new series particularly goes for that particularly out there flamboyant over the top sort of thing that doesn't sit well with me so i've been in this strange position where i keep beating myself over the head saying don't prejudge bill don't prejudge bill don't prejudge bill Mm. so i watch her launching a little video and i sit there and go 
gee, that was a terrible script, but I'm not going to prejudge her. Then you watch the trailer at the end of the Christmas episode and you go, wow, she's got some awful lines in that, but I'm not going to prejudge her. <laughs> and then I watch the new trailer that they've just launched. Um, that we'll talk about in a moment. And again, I go, gee, some of her jokes there are really, really lame. I can't, I'm not going to prejudge her. <laughs> but at what point do I go? It's not the way they cut it. It's just how she is. Yeah. Yeah. I'll look up. We can only wait and see, I guess. We can, we can. I'm not going to prejudge her, but I just don't like the way that she's been cut into these trailers. I don't know if it's, that's, that's just what they're going for. Someone's made a decision out there to make her really funny and quirky, and we're going to get a lot more of her, you know, the meat and veg of her come the series. But, gee, it's hard. Yeah, well, I guess they're trying to do something different to the uh, to the previous companions. You know, both Amy and Clara, I think, were cut from a similar cloth. Uh, I think this is quite a different sort of companion. Yeah, look, I'm not going to take too much away from the trailers. I'll, I will judge her when we actually see her, but um, I haven't liked what I've seen in the trailers. But whatever. All right. And I guess for me, Kenny, I think the uh, the casting probably was revealed a bit too early. I It's been so long ago, I can't remember quite back that far whether we already knew the season would be delayed in this way. Uh, maybe they didn't know, and that's why they did it. I'd have to go back and through the history books, so to speak, and sort of figure out dates and times and things to, to know if that's right or not. But maybe that's why. I don't know. Look, I suspect once they'd made the decision to cast her, given we all know that Cardiff is one of the leakiest establishments ever in the history of mankind, <laughs> yep. they kind of had no choice but to announce her, you know, minutes later, because otherwise it would have leaked out. Yeah, true. But, uh, you know, going the whole hog and making that little video, which I now think that Dalek scene, at least, is going to appear in a story. I don't know if they've reshot it or they've just wedged it in somehow. You know, they, they went to a lot of trouble. It wasn't just a press release. Yeah, no. So I don't know. And I think maybe I think that we will understand this story better when we see the end of it, which will be her in the actual series. Mm. Some, th- some things might make a bit more sense once we have the full context. Agreed. Agreed. And on that note, should we move into some news proper? So probably one of the big things that's come out has been the official announcement of the return of the spoiler men. Oh, sorry. Sorry. They're not spoilers now. It's been announced. (laughs) They're the Cybermen or the Mondasian Cybermen, or at least something that looks like the Mondasian Cybermen. So I don't think I've heard as many people say Mondasian Cyberman as I have in the last week or two. No, and it'll be really interesting to find out if this does actually mean that Mondas is returning and they are actually Mondasian Cybermen, or they're not, and they've just got the same design. They're not actually from Mondas. <laughs> yeah, in which, exactly. In which case, they're not Mondasian. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm I'm really keen to see how it all plays out because I, I don't want to give any spoilers. I don't think we should, but there is more information out there from people who have been on set taking photos of them and other things, which kind of hints that the story is is more than just them. And um, mm, I don't know how it all fits together. Yeah, look, neither do I. I don't know anything more than what was in the official BBC announcement. But I've got to say, when I first saw the photo popping up on social media at first i thought it was a fake really yeah i just thought no I've, I've, we've 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 had rumors about the monday cybermen for years this is just another iteration of the rumor and they're never going to do it and then i've discovered it was real and i don't think my inner fanboy has been quite as excited about a doctor who spoiler announcement as it has been about this one for many many years my inner fanboy got very very excited about this one 
Yeah, look, I've got to say mine too. The Cybermen, as I always say, they're my favourite monster in Doctor Who, but they're never done particularly well. So I, I live in this weird limbo land where I love these things, but ah, they're just never done right. So to go back to the original and have another crack. Oh, yes. Yes, please. Yeah, no, it was really cool. Um, unfortunately, 17 minutes later somebody told me that Missy was going to be in the same episode. And so <laughs> and, my... And that's not a spoiler, folks. That is officially announced as well. That's right. It was in the BBC press release. Uh, and um, unfortunately, that diminished my fandom excitement a little bit. <laughs> but that's okay. I had a wonderful 17 minutes. <laughs> now, is that because you're not keen on Missy in general? Or do you just think, haven't we already done a season finale with Missy and the Cybermen before? Hmm, wasn't that only a couple of seasons ago? <laughs> yeah, both. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Missy iteration of the character. I, I like my characters, as I said, to be a little bit drier, uh, a little bit more austere. And the way that she, uh, in my opinion, overplays it and really goes, you know, dials it up to 11, doesn't work well for me. And, and that's fine. We'll see what she does. But the combination of that and, okay, so we're going to have this wonderful return of the original Cyberman uh, and they're going to play second fiddle to a character I don't like that, that kind of is a bit of a worry for me, but we'll see what they do. Again, I could be very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and look, as we said a month ago, we raised the topic of whether this could be Missy's last hurrah. Is she disappearing with uh, Moffat? And we get a new master in Chibnall Who? Who knows? Um, so, you know, maybe you don't have to put up with Missy for much longer, Dave. Yeah, look, that's the great thing about Doctor Who. If there's something you don't like, it eventually regenerates or changes. So that's fine. But I do want to quickly raise the point on this as well, Rob. When this was all announced, there was a really good tweet from Gareth Roberts that put in inverted commas, Mondasian Cyberman, and then said, this is in a press release for the public. Mm, yeah. And, and I thought that was really interesting because as much as my inner fan absolutely got very, very excited about this, does anybody who isn't one of about the 10,000 really hardcore fans in the world know or care that these strange things from 1966 are back yeah and particularly using the word like you could say oh Cybermen are back original Cybermen are back that would make sense to the lay person but to say Mondasian Cybermen that, that is going a little far yeah so I'm not quite sure where that press release was aimed and maybe it was very much aimed at just getting fandom excited yeah yeah maybe maybe this whole series will be doing it for the fans you know it is Moffat's last uh, victory lap which would be a very interesting strategic decision for them to make hmm Mm, especially at this point in the show. Yeah, exactly. So, again, I'm not going to read too much into one press release, but I did think it was very interesting that it was so diehard, long-term fan-focused. Mm. All right, shall we move on? Yes. All right. There's been a lot of talk about class over the last month or two, but there's been no official talk about class over the last month or two in terms of whether we'll see a new series. I mean, the first series ended on such a cliffhanger with such a great ending. Clearly, the second series was going to be better than the first, no matter what anyone thought of the first. And yet we're sitting here, we're seeing the cast go out to UK conventions. It's about to screen in the US alongside series 10 of Doctor Who. But we still don't know what its future is. We still don't know where it's at. And there is certainly a lot of hate out there for the show. A lot of haters, as the kids say on the internet. Dave, what's your take on all this? I think you've summed it up very well. There's a lot of people in broader Doctor Who fandom who really didn't take to class. As we've said before, many of them weren't people you'd expect to take to class, but the, the, the vitriol with which they've done so has surprised me in some cases. 
I mean, there are plenty of people who've said, look, I watched it, it's not for me, and that's fine, the world moves on. But some of them are like, how dare they make something spin-off from Doctor Who that's not for me personally, the bastards! <laughs> exactly. And you can't... Gee, come on, guys. Uh, look, I don't know where it's going to go. We've got to be honest, the ratings have been below expectations, however you cut them. Oh, far below. Far, far, far below even what you'd think they're below, you know. Yeah, so, you know, that doesn't bode well, but I don't know if a decision's been made... Certainly, if a decision's been made, nothing will be announced until it's had a chance to air on BBC America. Mm. Um, unless, of course, they do launch that with the announcement of a second season. That would be one way they might do it. But if they're going to go the other way, you're not going to announce before it screens in America that it's been cancelled. No, no, that's right. And and just uh, on that note, when it does screen in America, we're, we are going to drop our eight episodes that we recorded, the eight uh, review episodes, on its own iTunes feed, so people in the US can tune into just that specific feed, one one episode a week, and uh, hear from us all over again if they haven't heard from us already. Yes, no, that'll be very exciting. I'm in fact going over to America to help launch that feed in May. So, oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> is is that coming out of our, uh, our joint budget, or how's that working? <laughs> uh, do we make a joke about Patreon accounts at this point? <laughs> oh, oh yes, no, no, no. no Let's no, move on. We'll move on. So. Something really weird happened about a week ago at the time of recording. The ABC here released a trailer for Series 10, and apparently they weren't meant to. <laughs> Oopsie. Because it got pulled very, very quickly. Now, obviously, in this day and age, copies were made and circulated very quickly, but I wonder what happened there, and I wonder why the BBC was so annoyed about it being aired and annoyed enough to have the ABC... Pull it, because I've watched it, and there was nothing that I thought was, you know, particularly spoilerish or wasn't already known and announced by the BBC. I guess it was just a big deal to them, like, you know, they haven't done promos for such a while, and here's our big moment to shine, and oh, it's already out. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, but if that's the case, once the surprise has been spoiled, the surprise has been spoiled, you can't get that moment back, so no. why pull it? Yeah, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I think the strategy should have just been to just officially release the trailer and not worry about getting it pulled and, you know, doing this, that and the other. It was it was a bit strange the way they handled that. Yeah, but look, nice to have an Australian exclusive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not that I actually saw it until I saw a copy long after it had been pulled, but that's okay. But I did, did want to say, Rob, I'm going to have a small little Dave's rant at this point. Yes. I've listened to a number of podcasts i've read a bit of social media commentary and all that stuff that happens in fandom around this trailer and some of it has been absolutely ludicrous people have looked at this trailer made a number of incredible assumptions about what this means for the show and then gone on to blast the show based on the assumptions they've made up wow <laughs> now when fandom's doing that you kind of have to wonder what we're going on. Like, I've had people look at this trailer and say, well, this is definite confirmation that we're going back to an RTD style, you know, one episode, one episode, two episodes, one, one, two, two, two. I've had others go, well, this is definite confirmation that it's going to be one long season six style series arc. And I've had, I've had people say all sorts of combinations of, well, this proves that it's going to be this tone or that tone or Moffat's done this and, oh, it's going to be this again. And how the hell did they reach those conclusions? <laughs> let alone judge the series by conclusions they've made up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, 
I don't know what to say. I mean, some things are played up a bit, like Bill's humour is played up a bit. I would be surprised if we go in and Bill isn't funny, <laughs> you know, if they've been trying to make it really funny in all the clips. Sure. I think that might be a given. But but trying to guess what the uh, the episode runs are like or the tone overall or the storyline, no, you can't. I mean, well, you can make it up, but you, you can't know for sure. Let's be honest, the only purpose this trailer serves in its existence is for the everyday casual viewer sitting down to the TV in the evening to watch it and go, oh, that Doctor Who show is back. I like that show. I must remember to watch it when it screens next week. Yeah, that looks like a lot of fun. There's something blowing up. Hey, great stuff. Yeah, Doctor Who's back. I'll remember to watch it. That's the only purpose of this trailer. Yeah. It is not there to be microanalyzed by archaeologists in thousands of years' time. And he's just there to let you know the show's coming back. Speaking of analysing, do you watch The Last Leg by any chance? Uh, no. Okay. The Last Leg, uh, UK talk show. Adam Hills, Australian, is the host, has two British comedians as his offsiders. It's uh, it's quite a funny thing week to week. They have good guests on. It's, it's quite fun. The opening to their show is the three of them walking along in slow motion. Um, things are blowing up behind them. The wind is blowing. All sorts of things is happening. And one of their viewers on an episode, well, at the time of this episode going out, it's probably like three or four weeks ago now, said, uh, <laughs> your opening credits look like the new Doctor Who trailer. <laughs> so they pulled them out and had a look, and they put their theme music against the Doctor Who trailer, and surprisingly, it was very close to the opening credits of The Last Leg, with uh, wind blowing and, you know, the companions looking at Capaldi and things blowing up, and yeah, I uh, I had a good chuckle at that. Oh, that's funny. I'll have to check that out. Hmm. Uh, shall we move on from that topic? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, recently, John Barrowman's been in the press saying, uh, I guess rather predictably, I'd love Jack to meet the 12th Doctor. <laughs> um, I guess unless there's something we don't know about the new series, his last chance will be the Christmas special. I, I don't like his chances in that. Um, Dave, your thoughts? I think you've summed it up pretty neatly there. Yeah. I'm sure he would love to meet the 12th, doc 12th Doctor. Given that the whole series, I believe, now has been filmed, it seems unlikely. Um, yeah. And look, I enjoyed the Captain Jack character. I like John Barrowman in many ways, but he's had his time. I think so, too. For a period after he left, there was a chance he could come back and it would seem to make sense. But a lot of time has gone by now, and it might just be a bit odd for him to suddenly appear with the 13th Doctor, I guess, at this stage. Yeah. It it, it just might not fit. And it, it, it's becoming almost sad every time he's, like, saying, you know, oh, I'd love to do this. It's like, oh, your, your time might have come and gone, you know. Look, look, it is a little bit, but I guess the alternative would be he could be one of those bitter actors that's, you know, oh, Doctor Who was just a show I didn't. Stop hassling me about it. I never want to talk about it ever again. At least yeah. he's not doing that. Yeah, yeah, very true. And uh, recently he celebrated his 50th birthday. So happy birthday to John. Yes. And uh, he I don't know if you've seen this picture. He I, I have, I have. Oh, you know what I'm going to talk about? Yes, yes. <laughs> he uh, celebrated listeners by shaving his head, essentially, and shaving all the colour out of his head. And the guy is basically white. Yes, he, he said that he had absolutely no idea what his natural hair colour was, because he's been dyeing it for so many decades, that he would just stop dyeing and then shave it. And yeah, he is completely and utterly white grey yeah yeah I was quite surprised I thought wow you know that that hair dye has really been keeping him looking young and relatively like the Captain Jack character of 10 you know 12 years ago it's uh, it's remarkable yes but look I have to say he pulls off 50 quite well and well done to the man 
Oh, he's looking fantastic for 50. <laughs> That's right. Let's move on. Yeah, so, Rob, I just wanted to let you know, last weekend, I went to a convention. Oh, okay. Now, it was called Con 80, and this was run in the old traditional style of conventions that you and I would have grown up as. So, amateur style, run by fans, for the fans. There were no guests, it was relatively cheap entrance, and it was just fans doing panels and doing trivia shows and all that sort of thing about science fiction. And this being Con 80 was focused on science fiction in the 80s. So it was a really nice feeling. And there were some great panels on, particularly the Star Trek panel, talking about what I think was the golden age of the Trek movies and then going into the launch of Next Generation. They talked a little bit about Doctor Who in the J&T years. There was lots of talk about how uh, computer games and arcade games and everything was starting to take off and how sci-fi meshed in with them and lots of great iconic movies, all that sort of thing. Uh, there was a panel on British sci-fi that included some really obscure stuff, a couple of which I've noted down as going to have to check out. So it was a really lovely to get this old-timey amateur fan-produced convention. I thought this stuff had gone the way of the dodo. Were people walking around, you know, dazed and confused? Like, what is this? Yeah, look, a little bit. But the downside of it was, I reckon 80% of the people there, if not more, were people who were fans in the 80s and 90s and are still around. It wasn't new people coming in. This was like an event for the old fans that didn't really capture the new fans, which perhaps shows the problem that fandom is in at the moment. Like a, like a classic band that's grown up and you go to their gigs and it's all old people at the gigs and there's no new fans coming through and you think, oh, <laughs> don't know how much longer this can go on. Yeah, look, that's right. And I have bought my ticket for the Midnight Hall reunion concert at the end of the year, so <laughs> I think it'll be something very, very similar. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So, yeah, look, just a little comment on Australian fandom. How much was it to get in? Uh, look, I only went for a day and it was maybe $40 for the day. 40 maybe 50 and, and I paid $15 to go to the trivia night that night. And our team did come second. Oh, very well done. But that, you know, that's still not cheap. That's not cheap, cheap. You know, $10 would be cheap. $40 is still a bit of a spend. Yeah, look, that's, that's true. It's still significantly less, though, than you'd pay for, say, a Matt Smith con. Oh, well, yeah, that goes without saying. Or even a supernova, for example. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So that was um, that was interesting. But I, I do have to brag. Yes. In the entire trivia room, I was the only person who knew which movie had an enemy called the Gorax. Oh, why do I know that name? Is it something I'll kick myself if you tell me? Yeah. The Gorax. Oh, look, we, we can't hold up the show. What, where is it from? Caravan of Courage. And there you are. Ah! Yes. <laughs> well done. I'm not sure I, I should be proud of knowing that, but I did. <laughs> well, it's so hard to get copies of uh, Caravan of Courage um, and Battle for Endor that, you know, that is really well done, actually. Oh, thank you very much. You had something to say, Rob. I do. I do. Briefly, um, I love my 12th Doctor NSAs. Well, I love the NSAs in general. These are the new series adventure novels. They've been coming out since Eccleston's era. Uh, they're, they're small. They're hardback. They're, they're quite cute. They're not really as good as the old Eighth Doctor adventures or indeed the new adventures that came before them from Virgin, but they're Doctor Who 
fiction and they are written by some quite good names so the three that are coming out uh in a fortnight or so are the shining man by kevin scott diamond dogs by mike tucker and plague city by jonathan morris all three of those authors have done great great stuff in the doctor Mm. who universe in terms of writing so i'm really hoping they've put out some some good um nsas here these will probably be the last nsas for the 12th doctor oh yes they probably would be wouldn't they yeah, which means in total there'll be nine if people want to go out and collect them. There's six out there at the moment. Then these three will come out. That'll be nine. And then I think that'll be it because they only put out a few of these each year now. It's not like the glory days of, you know, two Doctor Who novels a month, like a past Doctor Adventure yeah. and an eighth Doctor Adventure or a missing adventure and a, you know, and a, and a virgin new adventure. Um, it's, it's kind of sad in a way. I, I love Doctor Who fiction. Yeah, it is a shame, but hey, hopefully you'll enjoy these ones. I think I will. And finally... Yes, just a final little note. Uh, some listeners may have heard about something called the comeuppance of Captain Cat, which is this legendary little play as part of a larger series that was written by Peter Grimwade. And the legend has always been that it was a massive attack on J&T because the episode was all about this failing sci-fi series and there were really clear parallels. I discovered this was on YouTube. Oh, okay. Yes. So it's only about 25 minutes, so I sat down and watched it. Uh, I don't think it's an attack on J&T at all, but it is very, very clear, based on how the leading man is portrayed, that Peter Grimwade did not like Tom Baker at all. People who have watched documentaries about Tom, you know, particularly the ones where he's more honest, or some of the stuff on the DVDs, particularly around season 18, will recognise stuff in there. Like, um, Have you heard, Rob, some of those stories about how when Tom was really annoyed at Lala Ward, he refused to look at her during a take. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a moment in this comeuppance of Captain Cat where the producer turns around to the person next to him and says, why won't he look at her? Is he in one of his moods? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I have not... I want to say I've not even heard of this. Maybe I have and I've just forgotten. I've certainly not seen it. So I'm, I'm fascinated now to see this. Yeah, it's, it's 25 minutes. Look, it's a kid's show, so don't expect anything particularly wonderful, and it's a cheap 80s kid's show at that. Mm. But it is very, very entertaining if you know who Tom Baker is and who the author is. And it's got Simon Rouse giving a very good performance as the director, so points for that. Wow. Well, I, I will be checking that out. And uh, listeners, you should do the same. Now, moving on, we've got our uh, our feature, our feature for this episode. Uh, there was a little teaser for it at the very, very start of the episode, a little musical sting. Yes, so we decided that there's going to be plenty of time to get obsessed by Series 10, but before we get stuck in that massive whirlwind, we want to have a bit of fun. And we picked the topic of Doctor Who music now. We're not going to give you anything particularly, uh, um, I don't want to say not insightful, but you know, we're not going to get too anal about this. We're just talking about what music in Doctor Who do you think is lovely? Do you remember really well? Do you really like? And listen to a few clips and have a bit of a chat about it as hopefully a fun topic. And we've had some really good listener feedback, I have to say. We have indeed, and before we go on, I've got to say, I've listened to some Star Wars podcasts in the past where they've analysed music and they've really gone into it in depth and said, oh, you know, you hear this chord descending to a minor chord and then this happens, and it's like, oh, wow, this is really in-depth, you know. I'm understanding it, but I'm not sure it's it's actually enjoyable what I'm listening to. Uh, Here it's all about the feels, you know. Did you like this? Did you not like this? What do you remember? You know, and, and we put out the call last time around, if people remember, for some feedback. And uh, we've got some feedback. Yep, absolutely. 
So we'll dive straight in. Our first letter is from Jim Cameron. Thank you for running in, Jim. Always good to hear from you. Hi, Robin Dave. The pieces of music in Doctor Who which seem to have had the most impact on me have been by Paddy Kingsland. I love the historical yet futuristic score for The Visitation and the famous Q in Legopolis for the regeneration sequence, but the big one for me is the music played during the older Brigadier's flashback in Mordred Undead. The combination of nostalgic visuals and stirring music really packed a powerful punch on broadcast, and still does today, actually. Highlights from other composers include the sinister reversed cues in Power of the Daleks, the ghostly synth in The Ambassadors of Death when the spacemen go a-travelling, and Geoffrey Bergen's lovely scores for Terror of the Zygons and the Seeds of Doom. And that's from Jim. So thank you, Jim, for writing that letter to us. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Uh, that brought back some memories for me, even just hearing the names of uh, some of those episodes. I can hear the music in my head, and that goes to show how strong it can be with um, with fans sometimes. Yeah, there's definitely, when we get to our... Um, tracks that we've all picked out based partly on our picks and partly on the listeners picks there's definitely some examples from jim's list that we're going to include and yeah paddy kingsland legopolis visitation state of decay mordred undead frontios we'll be hearing a bit more from paddy as this episode goes on there's absolutely no doubt moving on we've got a an, an email from mark from 42 to doomsday hello mark he says, Dear Rob and Dave, I found your latest podcast quite tolerable. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, but what really piqued my interest was you asking for listeners' thoughts on the music of Doctor Who. I must admit, I never took any real notice of the show's incidental music until I listened to a friend's copy of Doctor Who, the music, on vinyl, which I promptly copied onto a C90 audio tape. This was BT before Torrance. <laughs> However, yeah, there was one track I always used to fast-forward through, and that was Malcolm Clark's musical score for the Sea Devils. Mark, how could you... Um, I could never make it past the high-pitched intro that sounded like a parrot being put through a rusty bandsaw, <laughs> and I preferred listening to Roger Lim's suite for Ark of Infinity, which to my ears is bloody horrible now. But then something happened. I don't know if it was my old age or my musical tastes matured, possibly a combination of both, but in the early 90s I upgraded my dodgy audio tape to the silver screen re-release on CD, and instead of pressing skip, I played the Sea Devil suite in its entirety. And guess what? I loved it. Now, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but to me, this suite of music not only encapsulates the mood of the story, but it evokes some of the key scenes, particularly from when I first saw it. And just pausing for a moment, I think that's what we were saying a moment ago. Sometimes you, you, you just hear the name of an episode, uh, Dave, and you think, oh, yeah, and the music's in your head. Yeah, that's exactly the sort of stuff we're talking about today. Absolutely. Yeah. His letter goes on. I also had a copy of Doctor Who, the music volume two. There's an imaginative title, um, which, again, <laughs> which again contains suites from some stories from season 20 and 21. This album was on heavy rotation back in the day, and I particularly enjoyed the music from Enlightenment, Planet of Fire, Caves, and The Five Doctors, again evoking great memories of the stories when I could only replay them in my mind and not on VHS. When the Radiophonic Workshop was shown the door in the mid-80s and replaced by independent contractors, <clears throat> sorry, composers, Dominic Glynn was a particular favourite of mine, along with Mark Ayres. It's very easy to criticise Kef the Hammer McCulloch, which I do a lot, whose incidental music enhanced, and I'm doing rabbit ears there for anyone who uh, <laughs> is just on audio, uh, enhanced key scenes in remembrance of the Daleks and Battlefield to the point it sounded like something that Stock, Aitken and Waterman were unfortunately inflicting on the charts at the time. For our US listeners in particular, they were making a lot of pop hits in the UK. They were doing things like Kylie Minogue and Rick Astley and things like that. Big, big drum machine synthy pop hits, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mark continues, Now, I know what I say next is going to cause some consternation with Dave. Oh, Dave, 
gird your loins here. But Murray Gold's music for the new series reminds me a lot of Phil Spector's work on the Beatles album Let It Be. Just like the song The Long and Winding Road originally had a very understated feel to it, Murray smothers the music with chimes, choirs, and really dials up the volume to 11 to smash over the head the feels of a scene when, it, in, when in most cases a less is more approach would have sufficed. The worst example, of course, being the castrati singing at the demise of the Tenth Doctor. I did want to go to the toilet to be sick when I heard this travesty, he says. Um, We're almost getting to the end of this email. This is a long one. Uh, Apart from a couple of Murray's signature themes, I Am the Doctor being quite a good one, a lot of his music is instantly forgettable, and with the new broom that is about to sweep through the show, I really hope they show Murray the door, and hopefully the music will go back to a more electronic score and feel similar to the Netflix series Stranger Things. Anyway, keep punching Murray and Kev's Casio keyboards into smithereens. Mark from 42 to Doomsday. Well, thank you, Mark. It was a very thorough email, and um, I'll yeah, I'm explain... just going to have a lie down now. I think. <laughs> have a rest. Have a have a, have a, have a yeah. We'll get your energy back. Um, no, the reason Mark says that I might not like what he said is that he knows very well that uh, the Beatles' "Let It Be" album is actually my favourite album, and I love the Phil Spector arrangements on that. So he was having a dig at me there, and that's fine. I never knew that before. That's interesting. You, yeah. you like it? Yeah, I, I I love "Let It Be" absolutely. Yeah, of course, very fraught during the recording process, and Phil had to come in and trawl through lots of tapes, as I recall, and and he did put a lot of, I guess, orchestras and things over the top of the uh, fairly sparse recordings in his mind to make them sound better, and and I think in some cases they did. Yeah, I I really like them, but um, this isn't the Beatles podcast. Oh, damn. There's there's an idea. (laughs) Yeah, don't get me started. (laughs) Um, No, look, Mark's made some really good points in there. We'll certainly be having the Murray Gold new series discussion when when we get there, and again... The examples that he's picked out there, stuff by Dominic Glynn and some of the other stories are ones that we will definitely be pointing out as we get into our clips. Indeed. Before we do, though, we have one last uh, a short message here from, a, from another listener. So this is the continuation of Kenny Davison's uh, email. Again, Kenny from the Book of Fab. He says, on music, Murray Gold's Doctor and Companion themes have been memorable earworms that have withstood their regular outings. Very fond of the evocative radiophonic work from the early to mid-80s, in particular Paddy Kingsland, Castrovolva Frontios, Peter Harrell, Planet of Fire, Two Doctors, and Malcolm Clark, Enlightenment. So thanks there, for Kenny. That's some really good examples. Again, he's mentioning again uh, Paddy Kingsland. Peter Howell was one he's brought up. We'll certainly be talking about some of his work. But he's been very positive about Murray Gold there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think Murray has got a, as many fans as I think he's got detractors. You know, that seems to be my feeling when I'm out there in, in fandom, getting around, having a look at what people are saying. Um, he's a very, um, I guess you could say, a Vegemite composer. Yeah, I think you do either love or hate him. Yeah. But, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about him. But should we dive into the music then, Rob? I think so. We've been talking about this music. It's now time to, I guess, play some clips and and to talk about things uh, in a little more detail. So why don't we do it in Doctor Order? All right. So what we'll do is we'll go through in Doctor Order. We'll make a couple of comments ourselves and we'll also drop in a couple of listener comments and play some examples. So we'll start with William Hartnell. Uh, Now, John Hole has written in with a whole lot of recommendations, so we'll scatter those through the errors. Uh, Shall I read this one? Yes, please. And thank you, John, for your email too. Yes, thank you, John. So John says on the first Doctor, by and large, I love the atmosphere sounds, but whether their actual musical background noise could be debated. Either way, Dick Mills, Hodgen, etc., radiophonic workers are legendary. 
just about the biggest thing I missed from the new series. Things like City Music 1 and 2, and he's talking there about the tracks from the 50th anniversary CD album that came out. Mm. So when I was doing my picks, I also picked Tristram Carey's stuff as epitomising the first Doctor. So let's perhaps dive in and just play a couple of quick examples of music from the Daleks by Tristram Carey. All righty. So, Rob, I think we can see there what John was saying about uh, is this really music or is it background sound? Yeah, I've, I've got to agree. It's more sort of background sound, more atmospheric type stuff. I, I quite like electronica being used in this way. And you see it done in a lot of 60s things that aren't just Doctor Who as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really evocative stuff. And as soon as you hear that music, you know you're on Scarrow and you know the Daleks are probably somewhere nearby. Exactly, and and this ties back to um, something uh, Mark from 42 was saying, you know, he'd like to see a bit more electronica, maybe, you know, maybe not quite this um, basic, but, you know, electronica does have this particular feel that I think is lost in the more recent sort of stuff, but I know we'll get to Murray Gold eventually. We will, and the first Doctor's era has also got some other more musical stuff. I was thinking last night, The Reign of Terror, where the composer there, Stanley Myers, um, works in the Marseillaise into the music because it's obviously French. And of course, Dudley Simpson makes his first appearance or his first, his music makes its first appearance in Planet of the Giants. So he's going right back to uh, that era. But certainly when you think of Hartnell, I think you think of that radiophonic workshop, electric stuff. Absolutely. Now, something that was also going on with Doctor Who music in the early days, and here I think we'll move into the second Doctor and I'll um, read some, some comments, is there was a lot of stock music being used, music that you might hear on one show and then watch another show and the exact same music is on it. Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. It's it's an interesting thing that even on Doctor Who, the same track was used in different episodes because it just was a stock piece of music. So you're watching one story and then you might watch another story from later in the series or whatever and you think, is, is that the same music? Am I going mad? No, it is actually the same music. Absolutely. And there's one particular piece of music I think we're going to touch on in a moment that we all associated with the Cybermen and then suddenly the Web of Fear came back and we got mm. to episode four, and they're playing that music. <laughs> yes, so uh, now's a good time to say Jeff Waddell wrote in. Hey, Jeff. And uh, he said, I absolutely love the Cyberman theme. I first heard it in Tomb, but it's not right when it turns up in Web of Fear, is it? And I guess what he means here is there's a piece of music by W. Joseph's called Space Time Music, part one, if you're being particular. It is in both Tomb of the Cyberman and the Web of Fear. However, if you're thinking of the Cybermen music from the Tomb of the Cybermen, you're probably actually thinking of another piece of music altogether called Space Adventure, which is in the Tenth Planet, the Moon Base, and the Tomb of the Cybermen. So we're actually talking about two different pieces of music here, uh, not to be confused with one another, two pieces of music that do appear in multiple episodes. Yeah, which is interesting, because I thought the Tomb Web of Fear one was Space Adventure. So maybe I'm learning something here. 
Yeah, and I mean, Space Adventure is in Tomb, but Tomb also has space-time music as well. So that that's where the confusion comes in, I think. Ah, there you go. There you yes. go. Yes. Well, shall we play the examples? I think so. Here's uh, space-time music followed by Space Adventure. not get anything more reminiscent of the Troughton era than those two pieces, I don't think. No, I, I have black and white pictures in my head, you know, <laughs> right now. Absolutely. No, they're, they're really wonderful things that I think, again, evoke that real monster era of the show. But again, there's different stuff in there. Now, John Hole's written for us that a piece of music from The Invasion, which is called The Company, is one of his favourites. And he says, The Company from The Invasion by Don Harper, this is brilliant, Love the creepy echoes. So, John, just for you, we're going to play a segment from The Company. Okay, and that was the company from the invasion. My gut feeling, whenever I hear that, it's almost like a western. I know it's not. It's not a western, but that that sort of spidery. I don't know what it is, guitar or something. It's almost western like. It is, and it's a really interesting sort of mix of that electronic sound, but also with a bit of a theme coming through, and again, very reminiscent of its particular story. Mm, definitely. Moving into the third Doctor era, Alastair Thompson-Mills, again from the Book of Fab, and one of my mates on Facebook. Hello, Alastair. He uh, nominates the Bessie theme. However, I have a problem here because I have no idea what the Bessie theme is. No, neither do I. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think whether... There's a couple of stories where they play music while Bessie's driving along, but I couldn't think of one that was a particular theme. Yeah, I, I pulled out a few clips on YouTube and I couldn't sort of isolate a single theme that was playing. So, um, Alistair, if, if there's a particular story where Bessie's driving along and you like the music, why not write in and let us know which one uh, which one you mean? Yes, that would be really appreciated. But there is a theme in the Pertwee era that I think we have to talk about. Oh, yes. And that's Dudley Simpson's master theme. Yes, this can be a real earworm. Just just the opening three notes is enough to be an earworm for the rest of the week. Let's play it and then have a chat about it. Okay, so when that theme's played, you know the master's somewhere nearby. 
Now, is this the first example of a character getting their own theme in the show? Unless we count the, the theme music to the show as being the Doctor's theme in the early days. But I know I know what you are asking. And, and I think um, I think it could be, actually, because he is a recurring character and does have that little sound motif that sort of, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this is by Dudley Simpson, who would be, by this time, was doing the vast majority of the work for Doctor Who. And Simpson generally, I think, really does do that, just that little gentle background music that isn't there to really be a character on its own. But it's just there to elevate the story a little bit, punctuate moments, cover moments of silence. And so he's not going for that really grandiose stuff. But when we get to the fourth Doctor, we'll talk a little bit more about him. But, yeah, really important part of the period year, that master theme. Oh, absolutely. And and a big shout out to Dudley as well. He's an, he's an Aussie, uh, lives in Sydney, and he's um, he's in his 90s now, I think, but still getting around. He is, he is, he is. I met him in 1990 at a convention in Melbourne. Yeah, I would have met him in the late 80s at a convention at Sydney Uni. Um, and he was like, to me, who I was only like 11 or 12 at the time, he was an old man then, you know, in the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But he did this wonderful thing where he had a clip from a telemovie he'd worked on, and he played it without the music, and he played about a three-minute clip from it. He then explained his process for what he would then do and how he would go about composing and what he was trying to do, then played the clip with his music over the top of it. And it was a really good way of explaining his process and, and how incidental music works. And, yeah, it was, it was great to meet him. I'm really glad I did. Excellent. Shall we move into the fourth Doctor era? Uh, well, before we do, I think just as a special treat for Mark, we better play the Sea Devils clip. Yes, now that you love it, Mark, after formally hating it, here it is. That is unique, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, and again, I can see the pictures in my head as uh, as it plays. Yeah, I don't think there's more you can say about that. That is a strange <laughs> piece of music, but good on them for trying something different. Um, Absolutely. That's Malcolm Clark, of course, doing the Sea Devils. So moving in, as you say, to the Fourth Doctor. Now, multiple listeners, and indeed us, so uh, Jim Cameron, John Hole, have nominated Jeffrey Bergen's music, particularly from Terror of the Zygons, but he also did the seeds of doom now are you familiar with jeffrey bergen at all rob no not not really not outside of you know what i've heard in doctor who he's one of the very few uh incidental composers from britain at the time who actually had his music released as standalone albums so he did the themes to stuff like bride's head revisited um the chronicles of narnia in the late 80s oh yeah i remember that yeah so all of those sort of things so he has a very particular style and very very talented musician uh, but yes, he did Terror of the Zygons and the Seeds of Doom. So we'll play an example clip that we've got from Zygons and then have a bit of a chat about it. Bye. 
Wow, you know, I've you know, I've not seen Terror of the Zygons that much over the last ten or twenty years. I've kind of forgotten the kind of music that was in that because it is it is different to other Doctor Who music around that time. It is. It's very uh, woodwindy, very flutes, and it's also very light. And you particularly see that I think in Seeds of Doom, where the eeriness of what's happening with the plants on the crinoid is really effectively highlighted by this odd, gentle woodwind soundtrack. Mm, an interesting choice for sure. Yeah, so yeah, a lot of love coming in from our listeners from Jeffrey Bergen and quite justified as well. Now, I mentioned Dudley Simpson earlier. I think there's a lot of music that Dudley does that, when I say isn't memorable, I don't mean that as a criticism, but he's not setting out to create memorable sort of stuff. But then if you look at the stories that he's done, many of them do have uh, you know, little tunes, little themes that you remember. The War Games would be an example. Uh, Nightmare of Eden would be an example. But the one that I want to play, just as an example of where Dudley Simpson does do a nice little theme that works its way through the story, is from The Sunmakers. All righty, let's play it. So, yeah, you can see there that's just a nice little tune that will work its way through the story and shows what Dudley could do, but I don't think wanted to do too much of. Yeah, I guess his workload was was quite large. So, on the whole, he's just banging it out, putting in, you know, sounds that go with the pictures, so to speak. But once in a while, he'd come up with something that was quite, oh, yeah, that's quite good. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget that for the last couple of years he was doing Who, he was also doing pretty much all of Blake 7. Wow, that is a huge workload. It is. And actually, dare I say it, I think his Blake 7 work is better than his Doctor Who work, partly because it's one consistent series where he can actually build his themes across a series, as opposed to Doctor Who where he's trying to find a different style or a different piece for every different story. Yeah, that's right. Oh, and he does appear in the Talents of Wen Chiang. He does. Yes. He does. He's done it all. He does. <laughs> Shall we move into a later Fourth Doctor period? Yeah, so we're now into the post-Dudley Simpson period where they brought it all back to the BBC. Now, I can remember not being a big fan of this when I was younger, but as I've got older and I actually look particularly at this season 18 period, there's some really good stuff in there, isn't there? There is. There is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and I think this will apply to New Who as well when we're 10, 20, 30 years beyond it as well. Um, you look back and you think, oh, yeah, that's of its time. It fits. It's interesting. You might not have been able to see it quite the same way at the time, though. So, of course, this is the season when everything changed for Doctor Who. Um, the, the opening credits, Tom's costume, everything. And the, the music is different as well. And, and I think um, Into Our Goalers from the Leisure Hive is a, is a good example of that. So, yeah, that's completely different to anything we'd seen in Doctor Who before. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And again, like you, I was kind of that sort of synth era of Doctor Who. 
I'm not sure how well it sat with me at the time. And, and particularly in the first few years after that era, it was like, oh, that's a really old era. You know, ooh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But looking back now, yeah, I can sort of get into it. Yeah, I, I tend to feel as well that when they first got the contract, so to speak, to do season 18, there was a real effort to make these wonderful, unique signature tunes so you look at something like the leisure hive then you look at what they did in full circle patty kingsland's work for state of decay roger limb's work for keeper of traken and one of our listeners john hole mentioned this is theme they're great little themes i think as they got into the davison era maybe again that hard grind started to get there and whilst there's some wonderful bits in there it does start to get back to just we've just got to get this music on for this damn show yeah yeah i get that feeling too <laughs> Um, so, yeah, lots of really great examples from season 18. But, look, several people, uh, Rob, you nominated, Jim Cameron nominated, I nominated the final clip from Logopolis. Yes. Now, let's play this one, and I might even play a little more than uh, I've played in, in past clips here. So there you go. For anyone who's watched Legopolis, that music will instantly bring to mind the camera coming down from almost off a crane towards Tom Baker's prone body. Um, that sort of boom, boom, just droning sound, which then morphs as it goes on into the regeneration music itself. He transforms into Peter Davison, and it's like a new beginning is signaled by the music, and it's all done in the music. It's actually a really clever piece. You know, the doom of Tom Baker dying, the joy of Peter Davison's rebirth. I'm really going on here, aren't I? But you can tell I really, really like this scene, and the music is absolutely integral, like in Star Wars or like in any film or TV show where the music is integral to the theme. This, oh, more than many other Doctor Who musical um, motifs, just fits the pictures so, so well. I've gone on too much, Dave. Your turn. No, no, absolutely well-deserved. That piece from Legopolis by Paddy Kingsland not only stands as a lovely little piece of music in its own right, but it is one of the single most evocative pieces of music, I think, in the show's history. And any fan who hears that music not only can picture in their mind the scenes that go with it, but it absolutely brings that flood of emotion to the fore that accompanies the end of Tom Baker's era. It's a, I think we can both say, and our listeners have said as well, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Yeah, and it, and it's not just because it prefaces my favourite Doctor, you know, appearing on screen. It, it's not that at all. It's just, I got a tingle, a genuine tingle up my spine when I listened to it a, a couple of nights ago as we were preparing for this episode. And I thought, for a piece of music to be able to do that to me, you know, 
however many years, decades after the fact, that is that is amazing, you know, and and more so than any other piece we played today. That that is just huge to me. That piece. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And um, I think we can all agree with that. But we move into the fifth Doctor's era now. We said before. I think the quality does go down a little bit in the fifth and sixth Doctor's era compared to what they did in season eighteen. Yeah, I agree. But there's still some really good stuff in there. People have mentioned earlier stuff like the visitation of Mordred Undead, and absolutely they're really nice little pieces of music there. Again, both by Paddy Kingsland. We've also had a comment on Twitter from the handle at Explain Later Pod, or I'll Explain Later, which says all the Dark Tower stuff in Five Doctors genuinely creepy as and very different other. So we're going to play a couple of highlights. Let's start with a clip from Enlightenment, which was nominated by a couple of our listeners. Now, I've got to say, Rob, when I was going through and cutting some of these clips from the classic era, Enlightenment was one I really didn't know which piece to cut because there's a number of memorable little pieces in there, whether it's the Tegan theme at the ball, whether it's the um, Captain Rack theme, whether it's the stuff that accompanies the flying sailing ships. It's actually a really good and diverse soundtrack, that one. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine being the composer there and being given the script, or maybe they got to see the early rushes? Um, it's ships flying in space, mate. We need something to go along with that. <laughs> yeah, and in the meantime, we've got Linda Barron playing a pirate captain. Can you do that as well? Yeah, it's it would be an interesting brief to get. It is, it is. But, you know, I think, yes, there's some good stuff in the Davison era, but it's, it's a little bit weaker. But, again, one that a number of listeners have mentioned to us, is The Five Doctors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, The Five Doctors was actually... I mean, in Australia, we had repeats, you know, coming out our ears. But The Five Doctors was actually the first BBC video I ever got um, appearing on the afternoon show one day on television. I won it uh, as a prize. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was the first BBC video I ever had. So I watched The Five Doctors a lot. And uh, this music is emblazoned on my mind too, not for bad reasons, but for for good reasons. It is very evocative. The the dark, the sound of the dark tower, you know, the that horn yeah. is, um, you know, I'm, I do terrible impressions of music. I'm sorry, listeners, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. It's like when you hear that, it's almost like hearing the cloister bell or hearing something else that is sort of like doom laden. It, it's quite something. When when listeners mention the five doctors to me, this wasn't one that immediately evoked a particular piece of music in my head i didn't go oh i know exactly what they're talking about but when i went to find a clip from it i've gone absolutely how could i forget this so let's play that clip Thank you. 
go. And there's that horn of doom, as I'm going to call it from now on. <laughs> That's right. Now, interesting point to make here. That's, of course, by Peter Howell. And Peter Howell's obviously most famous work for the show is that he's the first person that really gets to completely revamp the Doctor Who theme, when, which he does for JT in 1980. And this is a rare example of where he actually merges the tones of the Doctor Who theme into the incidental music. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, the show doesn't do that much, does it? Not much. I think, even going back to Legopolis, which we spoke about a moment ago, there was a snatch of it there. Just as the regeneration happens, you have the do-do-do at the end, yep. you know, from the theme. Um, but it is rare, that's for sure. Yes. Now, the final Davison clip we're going to play is one of my personal picks. It's from Frontios. I think it's a theme that's absolutely wonderful it's by paddy kingsland it's a bit a little bit different to a lot of doctor who themes it sticks in my memory i love it here's the clip Dave, now I've got to confess here, Frontios isn't one of my favourite episodes, although it's my favourite Doctor and, you know, I, I should absolutely love it. I can never get into Frontios. I think it's because I had a bad experience with it as a kid. I just didn't get it. So I've never sort of, it's never stuck with me, um, even years later when I am in a position to understand it better. But this piece of music is is really good. <laughs> you know, we were speaking recently about the Mysterious Cities of Gold um, yes. cartoon that we used to watch as kids and which you still watch, I believe, because you have the DVDs. Um, it's very much reminiscent of that with the pan pipes. Yeah, it's just something very uh, South American, almost unworldly in some ways, and, yeah, just a particular favourite for me. But I must admit, I really do like Frontier's The Story as well, so maybe that helps. You know, having having isolated the music like this, maybe I should go back and try and just maybe watch Frontios with the experiment of just listening to the music and maybe it'll make me, I don't know, get into the story a bit better. Oh, but I, I can't promise anything. <laughs> if you do, let me know how it goes. Will do. The Sixth Doctor. Yes. Now, I didn't think of any examples from The Sixth Doctor, but fortunately one of our listeners has. Now, who's this quote from here, Rob? This could be a John Hull. I've not jotted it down. My apologies, John, if it was or wasn't you. Um, let's say it was you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he said, The Mysterious Planet from Trial of a Time Lord by Dominic Glynn, coupled with the visuals of the TARDIS being sucked into the energy beam, this thing is epic. And I don't know how I forgot this one because he's absolutely right. Uh, we'll play the clip and again talk about it. I want to jump in first to talk about this because um, like you probably I was watching this as a kid and I thought it was the most epic opening to a Doctor Who story or season whatever you want to say ever 
full stop. It was just amazing. And it was the music and the visuals. It was like, is this the same show as last year? And unfortunately, that didn't continue through the rest of the season. It was only that first scene that was amazing. But wow, wow, what a piece of music. It is. It's a great scene. It's funny, 20 years later, you read occasional bits of criticism about Oh, J and T spent too much money, you know, blowing his load on the first season, first scene, and you know he should have spread over the. I disagree. It's easy to say that twenty, thirty years later, watching at the time a show that had been cancelled and had come back from the dead, it needed to have an epic opening, and as you said, those visuals and that music was an epic opening. Yeah, well, here's the thing. For people out there who haven't seen it, it still holds up today. Try and, I don't know, Google, see if it's up on YouTube or something, the opening scene of Trial of a Time Lord. The fact they used a model for the uh, space station and, and not uh, CGI and this music, it honestly stands up well today. You, you, you still sit back in your chair and go, oh, that's quite impressive. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, so big thumbs up there. Which moves us into the era of the Seventh Doctor. Um, now, I've got to confess, I'm not into this era much at all in terms of the music, but I recognise that, you know, there are good bits and that it's it's of its time, and I can sort of look back and say, well, yeah, it's, it, it fits, I get it. But I don't think I was into the music as much as you were, so maybe I'll turn this uh, section over to you to talk about it, because I think some of your favourite picks are here. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll start by reading John Hall's comment. He says, don't like McCoy's music much, worst of the lot in places, that infernal military drum beat was overused. And I think that reflects the comment that Mark Smith made earlier. John also says, I can't enjoy episodes because of it. Survival has got some good guitars on it. Which is interesting because I would actually say personally, three of my all-time favourite soundtracks are from the McCoy era. Mm. And when I was making a list of this a little while ago and thinking about it, I realised that Dragonfire, Happiness Patrol and Survival are all three wonderful suites of music, in my opinion. They're, they're all different. They've all got wonderful themes that fit the show. They're all a little bit epic. And then I realised they're all by the same guy, Dominic Glenn. So I thought, how, how good is that? Because I wouldn't necessarily pick that they were by the same guy from listening to them, because they are so unique in capturing the elements of that story. So... I'm going to play to you, Rob, the three clips that I've got of his work, just quickly, Dragonfire, Happiness Patrol and Survival, and, yeah, see what you think. Well, 
I've got to say up front, Dragonfire has never really stood out to me. Um, you know, if, if you said, what's the music in Dragonfire like? I couldn't have told you. But Happiness Patrol and Survival stood out for two reasons. One was Happiness Patrol's harmonica, and the other was Survival's guitar. Uh, the guitar in particular, it reminds me of some of the late 70s, early 80s anime that I would watch, you know, like uh, Space Battleship Yamato and things like that. Their soundtracks would often have that sort of really um, thin electric guitar on them, and I think that's actually quite cool. So of the ones you've picked... Actually, they're probably the ones that stand out to me as, as the better of, of Sly McCoy's era. Um, and they do stand out to me because of instruments that perhaps we hadn't heard a lot of in, in Doctor Who. I don't know if that's what you wanted to talk about, the use of like guitar and harmonica. We hadn't really heard a lot of before. Or did you have some other reason for liking them? No, I think that's a big part of it, absolutely. The harmonica and the guitars are really, really good. And I do remember watching particularly Survival when it went out, when I would have been about 10 and that guitar theme not only gave the sense that, well, this story is just a bit different, but that helped to add to the idea that the planet of the Cheetah people was a little bit more alien, mm-hmm. a little bit more unusual, because it wasn't just the same quarry with the same background with the same music. Yeah, it was the same quarry, but they used paint shop to make the background different, and they used the guitars to make the music different. So suddenly what would have been the same was just that little bit more weird, a little bit more alien. Yeah, now you're making me have feels for the McCoy era and wishing they'd done another another season at least because they were going in interesting directions. Even with the music, even if I don't particularly like it myself, you know, the music, the stories, everything that was going on, oh, what could have been? That could be a topic to explore after season 10. I think it could be. <laughs> we'll make a note of that. Rob, you've got a pick that comes next. I do, I do. The Eighth Doctor. Um you know, I've not watched the TV movie enough to pick out any piece of music from it as being particularly memorable, unless you count the bit with Pacini, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but that's not not really counted here. Um, but what I will mention is the Eighth Doctor theme music. Now, this is something a bit different because it's not incidental music. It is a theme. But Doctor Who had been gone for so long, and then it came back with this theme music. And the first time I heard it, I thought, this is interesting. This is interesting. What's happening? Oh, my God. Then this drum beat kicks in, and I thought... This is perfect. This is really good. And although I don't think it's the best Doctor Who theme there's ever been sitting here today, I can still hear it, and I sort of get that little bit of excitement as I was going to watch the TV movie for the first time. I don't know how you feel when you hear it. No, I think you've you've almost made my points for me. Like you, when I hear that theme music, suddenly the excitement of after seven long years, Doctor Who could actually be back that excitement just swells up inside me. And I'll always remember watching that tape for the first time and thinking, wow, we've waited so long for this to come out. But the thing that I do love about this version of the theme is that whilst it's got those wonderful orchestral swells and it's done in a bigger way than ever before, it still holds true to the Doctor Who theme in a way that I think some of the versions in the new series, not all of them, but one or two haven't. I always want my Doctor Who theme to have that diddly-dum, diddly-dum start and then swell into the the notes. Yeah. And yeah. I think a couple couple of the Doctor Who themes, particularly I think the Matt Smith one, where it replaced the diddly-dum with the fanfare, I, mm. I didn't like. But I think this one is, this is how you do Doctor Who theme, true to its original idea, but big. And I love it. All right, let's play a bit from it.
we go. Uh, we were both sitting back, I think, in, enjoying, reminiscing uh, as we heard that theme the first time we saw the TV movie. Yeah, absolutely, and I suspect a few of our listeners will be as well. Now, Rob, we're about to go into the new series. Yes, we are. We are. Uh, that's not negotiable. We are. <laughs> <laughs> Before we do, though, I want to play a couple of clips from something that's not Doctor Who, because it, taking out the telly movie, there's a gap of, what is it, 16 years between Survival and Rose. Yeah. TV changes phenomenally in those 16 years, and I don't think we can discuss the new series without putting into context what was happening. So, Rob, I'm going to play for you two quick clips from two TV series from the late 90s that were particularly notable at the time for their incidental music. two pieces of music so oh, i, I know them very well actually. i was going to say did you recognize them so what are they yes the first one is the babylon 5 theme now the babylon 5 theme changed from season to season i believe that's the the series 5 theme it, it, it was actually done as a piece of music for, called voices of authority but it was then reused as part of the season 5 theme yep there we go and the second one how could i forget that that romantic little theme that's angel and buffy's theme from buffy absolutely so Babylon 5 had music by Christopher Frank and Buffy the Vampire Slayer music by Christoph Beck. And both of those people were really big at that idea of actually creating themes for characters and really using the music to enhance the emotional impact of a show. There's there's one episode of Babylon 5 where J. Michael Straczynski, the author of, of the episode and the showrunner, simply wrote in his notes to Christopher Frank, read music for this scene, break our hearts. Mm, gosh, yeah. And you, and you can see what Joss Whedon was doing, similar stuff with Buffy. So I, I'm not going to wax lyrical about those two shows and their music, although I could. But I simply play them because I think we need to put into context what TV was already doing in the 90s when Doctor Who hit in 2005. Yeah, and interesting that one of them is Buffy because, you know, famously, I'm not saying anything new here, Buffy was a bit of a template for New Who in terms of the length and the way episodes would be paced and stuff for Russell T. Davis. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So do you want to launch us into the new series? Yes, the new series, of course, kicks off with The Ninth Doctor and John Hole says 2005 onwards is fantastic in my opinion. Murray Gold is amazing. Full stop. He doesn't actually cite any Ninth Doctor music, though, and I've not pulled out any myself. 
Uh, no, neither have I. <laughs> Oops. Oh. <laughs> yeah, isn't, isn't this weird? Chris is increasingly becoming like Blink and you missed him sort of thing. He's he's becoming the forgotten Doctor, um, which is a shame because he, he did do some great stuff. Yeah, look, he's still my favourite of the new series Doctors. Is that right? Yeah, but his era really more and more almost stands alone as its own one little era. Yeah, yeah, and there is... Um, there is such good stuff in it, but I guess it's, it's forgotten because I certainly didn't nominate anything here. And, oh, isn't that interesting? I might have to go back and specifically think about that era now afterwards and see if there is a piece of music I like from it. Yeah, interesting. But we do have some nominations for the 10th Doctor, I believe. We do. We do. Uh, again, from John Hole, and this is one that I brought up as well, Doomsday from Series 2, um, Tenants First, obviously. Uh, John Hull says, by Murray Gold, chilling stuff, I love it. So let's play it first. Everyone will know which, which piece of music it is, and we'll talk about it in a moment. Yeah, now I reckon that's a really good example of Murray Gold getting the balance right. It's not too strong, it's not too overwhelming, but it does tug at the heartstrings at just the right level, I reckon. It does, it does. I mean, I defy anyone to see this episode for the first time unless you're incredibly cynical and not be moved by that. I mean, that, that plunking bass line at the start, um, the vocal... Uh, then you get some interesting instruments coming in. You, you get a, an acoustic guitar quite high in the mix in places. And it's it's a really interesting piece of music. It fits the scene perfectly. It's it's just huge. I, I love it. It, it. It's almost cliche now to sort of mm. see that scene and, and all of that. Um, but just thinking back to the, the first time I saw it, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and, and what I was hearing. Yeah, look, that's very fair. John Holes also nominated This Is Gallifrey, Our Childhood, Our Home from Series 3 by Murray Gold, which he describes as epic and beautiful. And I believe we've got that track as well. We do. Let's play it. This one, Dave, I think is Murray Gold really going for it. I mean, John Hole described it as epic, and I think it's fair to say this is a, is trying to be an epic piece of music. It's it's got everything in it, bar the kitchen sink. And you know what? I think he gets away with it because this is series 
three, if I'm um, correct. Yeah. So Murray's not been in the job that long. When he's doing stuff like this, it's often the first time he's done it. You know, it's it's not something we've heard a million times before. And I don't know if we want to have a discussion about Murray Gold at this point, but I almost think that like showrunners, like doctors, like companions, um, Murray should have moved on by this point in time. You know, I like to see my doctors maybe go four or five years. That's my ideal time. My companions, maybe one or two years. My showrunners, I don't know, maybe three or four years. I think the guy doing the music should have a finite sort of life as well. Maybe it's a similar sort of time as a, as a showrunner in my mind, maybe three or four years and then move on and let the show have a different sort of sound. Because Murray, although Doctor Who has changed over the last decade or so, the music's always been essentially the same. And I would love if Doctor Who had had, just as it has different eras of Doctors and storylines, showrunners and such, had had a different musical feel to it. And again, I've probably raved on a bit too much there. Your thoughts? No, I tend to agree with what you're saying there. I think... Although Murray does copy his criticism, and sometimes quite fairly, he certainly was very effective in creating a style and musical tone for the Russell T Davies era, and that really helped to bring Doctor Who back. The fact that there was a marketable soundtrack, I think, was very, very important. But I did think that he did suffer from that every season's got to be bigger syndrome. Mm. As you say, by Series 3, he's probably right on the cusp, depending on your personal opinion, either just about to peak or having just peaked and coming down the other side, depending on where you where you sit. But I think by Series 4, he's trying too hard. Yeah, yeah. And look, I, I know there's... I'll, I'll say it. I know there's a lot of hate for Murray Gold out there, and I'm certainly not buying into the hate. I mean, I just nominated a Murray Gold tune a moment ago with Doomsday, and uh, some of these other Murray Gold themes we'll hear in a moment are great too. So I like him. I would just like to see diversity in the show um, and just something different to listen to. Yeah, look, and I think some of the hate comes from the fact that what he's doing is a very, in TV terms, very modern take on TV incidental music. And it would have been very strange to see Murray Gold soundtrack with something like Invasion of the Dinosaurs or The Robots of Death. It wouldn't wouldn't make sense because they're different eras. Mm. But, but this is why I played that Buffy and Babylon 5 clip because this is what that sort of TV is doing now. And you can't blame Murray Gold for, you know... I mean, Doctor Who would be weird if it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. He fits the mood completely. And, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the classic era Doctor Who DVDs where they'll have, like, um, you know, a trailer for an old episode, you know, coming next on DVD or whatever they say. And they play modern sort of music against clips from the old series. And, you know, once or twice it might sort of work, but on the whole it's really jarring and weird to have modern music with the old the old show's um, scenes and footage. So I, I know exactly what you mean about how his music wouldn't suit the, uh, the classic era at all. Yeah, by the same token, though, I think that his desperation to do something bigger and different and newer... Yeah, you know, at, at some point you run out of ideas or at some point you, you, you get, you know, you're going in circles. And I think you're right, three or four series would have been the right time for him to move on. Well, it's like anything, and I, I say this over and over again with showrunners and Stephen Moffat, you start treading the same ground, the same themes, because they're familiar, they're favourite themes, you want to do them all the time. Um, you know, and, and the same goes for the music, the same goes for each Doctor. Yeah. You know, as each Doctor goes on, he's just doing the same old shtick each season, maybe amping it up a little bit more each time until it's just like, mm, I'm ready for something new. Even though I might love you as the Doctor, um, I'm ready for a new one. 
Yep, no, I totally agree. Which takes us to the 11th Doctor. Mm. So John Hole has nominated I Am The Doctor from Doctor Who Series 5 by Murray Gold, but he has there said perhaps it's overused, but it's awesome. Yes. Now, look, I'll, I'll jump in here and say, you know, I've been saying yeah, Murray should have moved on. Maybe it's Series 3 or Series 4. Here he is in Season Series 5 putting out something really quite good, really quite, yeah, really quite awesome. John Hull, you're quite right. It did sort of turn up a lot, though. It became almost like the James Bond theme during the 11th Doctor's um, era, you know, when he'd be doing something, you know, and it'd start playing in the background almost like a Bond theme. Uh, maybe that was the idea, I don't know. But, yeah, it is a good piece of music. I recall my wife, um, who's a fan of the Mass Effect PC game series, did a uh, sort of a, a mashup clip of her characters in that game. What do you call that? Mashima, I think they call it when they... Um, no idea. Right, when they take clips from video games and, and set them to music and stuff. And she used that music against her Mass Effect video that she made, and it fitted that perfectly so it is a good piece of music in general and if i was matt smith i'd be pretty pretty damn happy that i had this as my theme music i'd probably want it played as i walk into restaurants and things um (laughs) maybe that just says something about my personality dave what do you reckon uh look i don't mind the music itself but it it conjures up negative reactions from me because of the way it was used in that i thought it completely lacked any subtlety you'll get scenes and moments almost out of nowhere and almost sometimes quite incongruously, in my opinion, suddenly this theme would would play. And I didn't think it always fitted. And it certainly was completely unsubtle. Like, you couldn't miss that this theme was starting. And it was like, oh, the theme's coming. Oh, they're doing the theme bit now. Oh, there's the theme. And, (laughs) yeah, I I, I didn't – it didn't work for me the way it was used. I don't think that you – to me, a really good character theme is one you don't notice, but you do notice. Like, it's 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 there, and you're noticing it, and it's working, but it's not in your face. And it's not a character in its own right. And I think I Am the Doctor became almost a character in its own right, walking into the scene, wearing, you know, techno-orange flaming clothes with a big sign saying, look at me. Mm, yeah. Do you think it was like the Bond theme in that respect? Yeah, look, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. There is there is one part of it too. I mean, I, I praised it earlier and said it, it agreed that it is awesome. The bit where the choir kicks in is probably the tipping point for me. You know, the the early part of the track, like the I get that. That's like the Bond theme to me. That's cool. But later, when the choir starts, like this in the background, yeah, I'm not sure that's my doctor. I'm not sure my doctor has a choir following him around. Yeah, which perhaps is part of the reason why I never really thought of Matt Smith as being my doctor. Shall we move on? Uh, yes. So we need to mention a very controversial piece of music, oh, and that's God. from that's from the um, episode "The Rings of Tedium." Sorry, "The Rings of Akatan." <laughs> um, do Do we have to look? Just play a very quick clip, and then we'll talk about it. All right, quick clip. Yeah. 
my god! I don't, I do you hate that as much as I do? Yeah, good. Yeah, that's bloody awful. <laughs> it is. Uh, look, I thought it was a terrible episode, but that music really was just. Anybody who'd been saying that the music was too in your face in Modern Who suddenly had this episode to point at and go, see, I told you so. Yeah, I mean, talking about music making episodes with, with other you know pieces we've spoken about and how it just fits so beautifully, here's how it just makes an episode worse. You know, I mean, the episode itself was bloody weird and I, I still don't quite understand what was happening. But yeah. <laughs> oh, this music, this kid, ah, no, make it stop. And and one of the things that I least like most about the... One of the things that I dislike the most about the Matt Smith era is him making, pardon my language here, long, wanky speeches. Yeah. So when you have the Doctor making one of his long, wanky speeches, over the top of which is a terrible piece of music and all being done at some sort of giant, smiley pumpkin face in the sky... <laughs> I wasn't having a good time when this episode was shown, but I I, 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 I insisted to replay it because it, a couple of people, and this was an isolated comment, and a lot of people did make the comment that maybe this was an example of the tail wagging the dog, because at this stage, the whole Doctor Who in concert, Doctor Who experience, all that sort of thing was happening, and maybe this was an example of them deliberately putting into the show stuff that they thought would be wonderful to play at the Albert Hall or wonderful yeah. to play in a touring concert. And I don't know if that's a fact or not, but the fact that a number of people said it at the time perhaps started to show some of the cynicism that was coming in with the way this music was being done. Oh, look, I think if you're composing this stuff, knowing that those kinds of shows go on, you couldn't not compose it without thinking, oh, this would be really good in the Albert Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. All right, so we then got a couple of final ones, which I think... You've got for us, Rob, and I think one or two of them were your picks. Yeah, look, one one of them is for sure. The first one, though, that I'll play is um, is one I agree with, too, so I guess you could call it my pick. Um, Kathleen Cruikshank. Hello, Kathleen. Kathleen follows us on Twitter. Oh, that's good. Hi, Kathleen. Yeah, um, she joins us uh, here at the 11th Doctor, at the 11th hour, so to speak. Um, she says, The wedding of River Song, sad and ethereal, yet fits the Doctor and Rivers, his future, her past, beautifully. And, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful track. Let's play it now. Okay, and that was The Wedding of River Song. Yeah, I have actually hadn't noticed this music before you selected and, and sent me the clip in preparation, and um, I thought it was really good. And because, look, I'll, I'll be up front, it's an episode I didn't enjoy from a season I didn't, didn't enjoy. So I kind of missed some of the music in there, but now that I'm seeing it in isolation, I'm going to have to go back and check out some more of it, because that's, that's quite nice. Now, before we get on to the 12th Doctor, I just want to give a quick nod to Clara's theme. Here's a quick taste.
that's Clara's theme. I think it's a very pretty theme. It's sometimes woven into other music, which I like, in a, in a sort of Star Wars John Williams way. When he gets a little motif, he'll often wheedle it in here and there. And the basic Clara's theme you can hear in all sorts of different pieces of music during the Matt Smith era. It sort of pops up here and there. The funny thing is it's it's wonderfully romantic and that kind of didn't suit her in the end because I didn't see her as a, a wonderfully romantic kind of character by the end, maybe in the earlier days. I'm going to make the point. I didn't know that was Clara's theme. I just thought it was a sort of a thematic piece of music that weaved its way through a couple of seasons. I, I couldn't have told you that that was Clara's theme. So that's really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's perhaps best done by... When Capaldi plays it on, on guitar in Hellbent, it, that's mm. a really nice interpretation of it and probably a nice farewell to that little motif as as well. I, so, yeah, look, I, I do like Clara's theme. I don't think it in, entirely suits her all the way through, but it is just a... You know, if I'm feeling particularly sappy and romantic, that is, yeah. a, that is a good thing. Brings us to the Twelfth Doctor. Yes, and John Hull says... Such a good contrast with Peter Capaldi. Perhaps this matches the slower, subtle acting changes from Matt Smith. And the track is Tell Me, Am I a Good Man? Now, Dave, I don't know about you, but when I listened to this, I could sort of pick out bits of it and thought, oh, yeah, I think I remember that. Oh, where was that? Oh, I'm not sure. And <laughs> I don't know what to say about it, because although I can pick out bits of it as a piece of music, it just doesn't hit me in the same way a Doomsday or a Clara's theme or, a, you know, this is Gallifrey does. It's it's an oddity, and John makes the comment, you know, perhaps this matches the slower and subtle acting changes present in Capaldi. Could that be the case? Yeah, look, I think it's definitely a deliberate decision to, on the composer's part to go that way. But I'm I'm with you. If you'd said to me, "How does the Twelfth Doctor's theme go?" I wouldn't have I, I couldn't have told you. I wouldn't have known. Con, con, contrasted, obviously, with you know, the Eleventh Doctor, where you go, "Look, as much as I hate it, I know what it is." Mm. I couldn't have told you. So I don't think it's necessarily worked as well as a theme it's not a bad piece of music in many ways but i haven't associated it with capaldi in the same way which yeah. is which is a good thing because i actually don't need the characters to necessarily have their themes you know in the way that star wars might you know yoda appears and you get yoda's theme darth vader appears and you get darth vader's theme yeah i, I don't need that so i actually you know having made the criticism of the overt use of it in the 11th doctor's era I praise the subtle way that they do weave these themes into the 12th Doctor's era. I think that's actually a good thing that they're not as recognisable because they should be something that enhances the story, not a character or a part of the story in their own right. Yeah, so in that sense, very, very successful. Um, but in the sense of, is it something I've got on my... Um you know, on my phone that I play when I'm getting around with headphones on. No, it's not. Which, you know, ask, ask the question, is the purpose of incidental music to enhance the television show and maybe be marketable, or is it to be marketable and hopefully enhance the television show? Well, that's a similar question to, are we writing this for the Albert Hall or for the TV show? Um, yes, I think there's a good question in there. Yeah, that's right. And I, I worry that sometimes Murray Gold was too set on this will be a great track on the CD or this will be something that people listen to as a standalone piece of music 
And that sometimes isn't the right attitude to go into a television score with. Mm. So, you know, we're not hating on Murray Gold at all. He's done some wonderful work. But let's face it, when you do as much work as he's done on the show, you're going to have hits and misses. Yeah, I want to make that doubly clear. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. I'm definitely not hating on him. I think there's some good pieces he's done. I just think the show needs to change at times. And it's the same with Moffat when I say Moffat really should have moved on a season ago. You know, uh, okay, he's made this series fine. I'm not hating. <laughs> I just like to see change come a little more often than it has been. Yeah, fresh ideas are never a bad thing in a show like this. Exactly right. Exactly. Still, we've covered 50 years of Doctor Who music in about an hour and a half. Yeah, it's not bad going. Not too bad. Hopefully hopefully this hasn't been too long for our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed listening to all these little pieces of music. Yeah, look, as Dave said last episode, this is intended to be just something a bit fun and, and easy to listen to before we get into the, the weekly, here's a review, here's another review, here's a review, here's another yeah. review, which will which will be quite a grind, listeners. We, we know it, but we want to do it, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, so something nice to keep us all entertained and do write in, do tweet us to let us know what you thought of our picks or if there's something we obviously missed because we love to hear from our listeners. We love to include that in our feedback. Definitely. Hello at the dwshow.net or, of course, on Twitter and Facebook. Absolutely. So the next time we talk, Rob, yes, we'll be reviewing an episode. It's quite amazing. It's quite amazing. I'm, 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 I'm excited, but I'm trying to keep it on the down low, you know? It, it still doesn't feel real to me. No, no, it's been gone for so long. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, imagine if it went away for 10 years. Well, <laughs> uh, no, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> we won't open that can of worms. No, 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 no. All right. Until then, listeners, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.